Another story in the dramatic series, The Challenge of Space. Good evening. This is Charles B. Ryan, head of the Department of Space Research here at the New Mexico Center. Tonight, I have a story for you that is as fresh as tomorrow's headlines. A story that takes us but one step away from mankind's greatest adventure. And I call this story, Ten Miles to the Moon. When the sun burns straight overhead and the grass lies scorched underfoot, when the breeze is gone and the air hangs heavy as lead, when the red dust cakes on a man's face and the dryness bites deep in his throat, that's when a man needs a beer. Carling Black Label Beer. Husky, lusty, and strong. Carling is the man's brand. Extra strength Carling Black Label is now brewed right here in South Africa so you don't lose a day of that lusty, lively taste Carling is world famous for. If you've got a thirst, put our brand on it. Carling Black Label, brewed for men in 18 breweries around the world. Through the ages, man has always reached out for the moon. Religions have been founded with the moon as an idol. Astrologers even today claim to plot the course of human lives as influenced by the moon. Madmen were supposed to come under the spell of this earthly satellite. Even our word for madman comes from the Latin for moon, lunatic. The moon is romance, and the moon is madness. And now that man has grown winged, this romantic madness is still upon us. For we are the people who are blessed with the technology and the ability to do what man through the ages could only long to do. To reach out and touch the moon. To walk upon it and to say in truth, we have known the moon and it is ours. <laughs> Ten 
1961, a young man took his place in front of Congress in Washington and spoke. His name was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, President of the United States, and he spoke about the moon. I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single space project will be more impressive to mankind and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And I ask this Congress for funds to enable... An impossible dream? Another instance of moon madness? At the time, that's what it seemed to be, because the Russians were far ahead in the race toward the stars. America had not even been able to place an unmanned lunar probe closer than 20,000 miles to the lunar surface. And that's a good distance away. Nobody believed then, even remotely, that it could be done. And yet, in 1962, President Kennedy spoke again. Spoke on the same subject. No nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. That challenge is one that we are willing to accept, that we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. The Challenge of Space, the title of this series of programs, and the words of President John Kennedy. But of course, there were immediate problems. Nobody knew just how to go about reaching the moon, far less landing a man on its surface. Rocket expert Werner von Braun, looking far into the future, saw it like this. I would use two Saturn rockets, one carrying a manned capsule and the other one carrying extra fuel. Both these rockets would be launched into Earth's orbit, and there they would rendezvous by the rocket with the capsules refueled from the other. The refueled capsule would then shoot out of orbit towards the moon and return. In effect, quite simple. That was one approach from Werner von Braun. Maxime Faget, one of the designers of the Mercury spacecraft, had yet another and possibly simpler idea. Here is how he described it. Naturally, everyone knows that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So I envisage a rocket larger than any rocket yet on the drawing boards which will simply lift the spaceman from the Earth directly to the moon. The capsule, which has a certain amount of power of its own, would then lift from the surface of the moon and return to Earth. Two very sound theories from two of the leading exponents of rocket research. Both were worth considering, but the final answer had not yet been reached. An American spaceman had to reach the moon. President Kennedy had given the green light. But how would it be done? It was at a meeting in Washington that the answer was finally reached, and from the most unexpected source. Uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, please, thank you. Uh, we thank uh, Dr. Von Braun for his very enlightening talk. This is, I think, worth serious consideration. Now, our next speaker, some of you may already know, although he prefers to stay out of the limelight. Gentlemen, 
Dr. John C. Hubel. Thank you, thank you. Well, it's nice to know my friends are out in force today. Thank you. Now, gentlemen, I've examined the theories put forward by my eminent colleagues, Maxim Pagier and Dr. Werner von Braun, and the one fault that I have to find with them is that they will not be practicable for quite some time yet. Certainly not within the time period asked for by President Kennedy. Now, it occurs to me that rendezvous around the moon is like being in a living room. Now, why should we take the whole darn living room down to the moon when we could get there in an easy chair? A little tiny craft, rather than a big one. So I've evolved this theory, which falls right within my field of work, called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, or L-O-R. Now, gentlemen, tables of my figures have been handed to you. If you have any queries... Yes, you are being misleading, Doctor. Your figures lie! A point of order, Dr. Fletcher. Please control yourself. Yes, Dr. Von Braun, you have the floor. With respect to Dr. Hobart. Mr. Chairman, I'm afraid this idea is no good. No good at all. John C. Hubolt's idea was dismissed. He was asked to drop the subject of lunar orbit rendezvous entirely from talks he gave at NASA meetings and conferences. And still men talked and planned on the best way to reach the moon, now so close yet still so far away. Finally, desperately, after months of frustration, Dr. Hubal bypassed the administration with a letter direct to the associate administrator of NASA. NASA gave Hubal a hearing, and at last, Max Faget and Werner von Braun came round to his way of thinking. Now, nothing stood in the way of the Apollo project, the fastest way to the moon. Work began on the Apollo modules, the three-man capsule in which the astronauts would live on their way through a quarter million miles of space, and on the lunar excursion module, the LEM, in which they would actually land. The two craft which would orbit together, then separate, then rendezvous above the surface of the moon. The two craft which would become affectionately known as Charlie Brown and Snoopy. But first, there were experiments. The first ended in tragedy when Apollo 1 burst into flames and the lives of three pioneer astronauts were snuffed out in seconds. But work went on. Schedules were kept. Men were trained. And then the first manned flight aboard Werner von Braun's gigantic Saturn rocket was made in the capsule named Apollo 7. Aboard were astronauts Wally Schirrer, Don Eisler, and Walter Cunningham. These men and the Apollo mission were gold. They practiced the intricate maneuvers of docking in orbit, then returned to their native Earth. But then America gave the world a Christmas present unlike any it had ever had before. Astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell, and Bill Anders flew their Apollo 8 capsule around the moon. Chris, the horizon here is very, very stark. The sky is pitch black and the sun is white. We can see the lunar craters Casper and Gilbert. Further on the horizon, the mountains are coming up now. They're heavily impacted with numerous craters. There's a beautiful moon out tonight, Frank. There's a beautiful earth out there that we can see, Chris. 
I can see the entire Earth now out of the center window. Hey, do you suppose there's intelligent life down there? Who's the Joker? That's Bill Anders. Did you know, as we headed out toward the moon coming up here, the Earth got smaller and smaller. The continents blended together. Maybe man's problems will also blend together and get smaller. And we can start generating a spirit of cooperation. Merry Christmas, Frank. And so Apollo 8 circled the moon and came home. Then came the little publicized Apollo 9, but all this was prelude. Nothing more than the overture to the symphony which had yet to come. Because now... Now came the second-to-last step in man's greatest achievement. Now, wheeled out on its enormous gantry to the launch site at Cape Kennedy, comes the mightiest rocket the world has ever seen, the Titanic Saturn V, the brainchild of Vanna von Braun. The Saturn V rocket, the most powerful of all the Apollo boosters, consists of three stages. The first two stages are jettisoned immediately after burnout by which time the third stage and the modules will be in a parking orbit around the Earth. Now a five-minute burn of the third stage boosts the spacecraft past escape velocity, the speed needed to escape the Earth's gravitational pull, and sends it on its way to the moon at 24,000 miles an hour. After the third stage is jettisoned, all motive power comes from rockets contained in the surface module, which is only jettisoned shortly before splashdown. Dr. Werner von Braun, atop his powerful Saturn V rocket, waiting for the fire which will send them hurtling toward the moon, sit three skilled men, command pilot Tom Stafford and fellow astronaut Eugene Cernan and John Young. And as they wait to hear the countdown reach the zero mark, let's hear from command pilot Tom Stafford. Apollo 10 Command Pilot Stafford describes the mission for Apollo 10. The major reason behind the Apollo 10 mission is to pull together all of the human facts that we've had in the past the previous Apollo missions and find out the final unknowns before the actual lunar landing mission. Tom Stafford, you're going to be a very busy man. Those are a few minutes before liftoff from Cape Kennedy. Could you describe what you and John Young and Gene Cernan are doing inside the spacecraft there from about two minus ten on down to zero? All right. Uh, at this time, we're going through the final switch position checks with the spacecraft test conductor, and I'm monitoring the booster tank pressures and the booster parameters down below. And I have the charge of the board handle. John Young is looking at the computer in the center seat and uh, looking at some of our, our basic uh, small engine parameters. And Gene turns on the right, checking the fuel cells, electrical power, around nature's AC power, DC power, and the systems on the right-hand side. Tom Stafford, interviewed by William McCrary and Red Turner on The Vice of America. And at this moment... In the Houston Space Control Center, tension is mounting among controlled activity. The time is 18 seconds and counting. 17 seconds and counting. Guidance internal. 15, 14, 15, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have a movement sequence five. Engines on five, four, three, two. There's the fire. Engines running. 
stars of Apollo 10 are on their way to the moon. Know something? In these mellow after-supper hours, there's nothing like a beer to make a man feel good, relaxed and good. And there's no beer like a Carling Black Label. Carling is the man's brand, the great American beer that's now brewed right here in South Africa, so you don't lose a day of that lusty, lively taste Carling is world famous for. Got a thirst? Then why not get your hands on a Carling right now? Cold and frosty in the can. Man, oh man, isn't that just what real beer is all about? No wonder Carling is enjoyed by men in more than 50 countries around the world. Go for the man's brand. Go for Carling. Carling Black Label. I'd like to backtrack slightly in time to just a few moments before the launch of Apollo 10 from Pad 39B at Cape Kennedy. Because it is at this point that the story of this voyage, the voyage of the astronauts themselves, begins. Over then to Red Turner at Cape Kennedy for a description of the vehicle that these men will ride. On top, we can clearly see the Apollo spacecraft and the uh, command and service module below. The spacecraft standing on the pad stretches over 130 meters uh, into the sky. The weight out there on the pad at this moment is 2,945,134 kilograms. This is the heaviest weight ever lifted into space by the United States. I believe the heaviest ever lifted into space in history. Scheduled to go toward the moon will be 94,500 pounds or 42,865 kilograms of Apollo and lunar module spacecraft to be swung away from the Earth and headed for the moon. That's the machine that Vanna von Braun built. Perched high above it, the three men wait their long journey, a journey of eight days and more than half a million miles. On five, four, three, two, one, all in. That's William McCrory at the Apollo News Center in Washington describing the launch of Apollo 10. Now, just how fast does a rocket this size travel? How long does it take to place three men, their equipment, and a booster rocket into orbit? Let Jack Riley answer that question from the Apollo Mission Control Center in Houston. With all systems go, just more than three minutes into the ride. Down range, 81 miles, 46 miles high. 
81 miles downrange, 46 miles high, at 3 minutes and 9 seconds into the mission. And just 1 minute and 40 seconds later, the ship was all of 230 miles downrange and 76 miles high. Some ride. And maybe Eugene Cernan said it best just shortly after liftoff when he spoke with his buddies up there. What a ride! Oh, Pete, what a ride! Beautiful. Everything's looking good. It's fantastic, Pete. Really fantastic. Just like old times. Man, scarcely ten minutes after liftoff, this was the news from Apollo 10. Fifteen minutes after liftoff from the Earth, and the spacecraft is now moving fast out across the Atlantic. It is safely in orbit, beginning its first revolution of the Earth. The raw power of the gigantic Saturn ship, placing the three men in their orbit less than fifteen minutes after liftoff. Now they began their first swoop around this Earth of ours, crossing even the sprawling continent of Africa in a handful of exciting minutes. They're well into orbit. We'll pass over the Canary Islands, going over the continent of Africa, over Mali, Niger, Chad, in another four minutes, Central African Republic, Uganda, over Nairobi, right over Nairobi, uh, and out over the Indian Ocean. Two easy orbits of the Earth, and then the big jump to the moon. Now the powerful S-4B rocket had to be fired for just less than six minutes to boost the three adventurers to a speed of more than 23,000 miles per hour. Escape velocity for translunar injection. Tom Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan are on their way. Translunar injection, PLR. Underway now as Apollo 10 is in truth on the way to the moon. The pace of work eased off for Tom Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan. There was still work to do, sure, but now there was also time for rest and relaxation and for much-needed sleep. And with the moon in the region of three Earth days away, there was even time for kidding around with the ground staff. Hey, Charlie Jupiter. He sure is. Go ahead, Gene. Hey, Charlie B. Play us a favorite song, will you? I forget the title, the one about Blimey someplace or something. You know the one I mean, babe? But there was still work to do. Plenty of it. Flight paths, systems, communications, figures, all these had to be regularly checked and rechecked between Apollo 10 and Houston Control to make sure of a perfect lunar orbital entry. Then, on the night of May 21st, 1969, at 10.45 p.m. South African time, the rockets of Apollo 10 fired twice, and Tom Stafford spoke. Charlie, you can tell the world that we've made it. Man was once more in orbit around the moon, and now the pace quickened. After a few minor difficulties with insulation that had come loose and a slip docking collar between the two modules, Snoopy and Charlie Brown, the goal was given for the separation of the modules in orbit 60 miles above the moon. Expert hands at the controls, the two modules moved slightly apart in their lunar orbit. 
the separation turn. This is a maneuver in which the command module will slowly fire its RCS for reaction control system clusters and on the way from the lunar module. Okay, separation. There we go. There's the burn. That's John Young. Stafford said, adios, and we'll see you in about six hours. For the first time, heading on the moon, men are going off into a maneuver. In a spacecraft designed only to operate in space, the lunar module. The first flight of a spacecraft designed and built only for travel in space. See you in six hours, says Charlie Brown to Snoopy. And now, there's just one more step to go on this important mission. The descent to ten miles of the moon. But suddenly there's trouble. Snoopy fails to pick up the signals from Charlie Brown's radar transponder. Stafford calls John Young to check the transponder... And John Young replies. My transponder is on. That's John Young. Transponder is on. Except which is not ready. Transponder. This is the lunar module now wants to check out its rendezvous radar mechanism. Transponder, an electronic device on the command module, which says, Here I am when you're looking for me. Hello, Houston. How soon we have a new upgrade on a CSX 360? That was Gene Shannon asking Houston for an update on the guidance system. Stand by. We'll have it in a moment. searches for a landing site for those who will follow in a few weeks' time. On the dark side of the moon, communication from the little spacecraft blacks out, and for 50 suspenseful minutes, the world holds its breath. Until, speeding through the lunar dawn, an exultant voice calls out, Now the mission appears successful. But the troubles are not yet over. Halfway through the second orbit, only 9.4 miles above the moon, Snoopy's controls go out of kilter. A moment of nightmare for the two men aboard. Hey, hey, I've got it. It's okay. I'll tell you that was wild, baby. I thought we were one of those. 
A simple switch. Yet two men might today be lost because of it. The rest of the mission went without a hitch. Snoopy and Charlie Brown redocked in lunar orbit, and Charlie Brown, now with all three men aboard, sailed back home to a splashdown which today is almost routine. But two friendly, heartwarming messages had yet to reach astronauts Tom Stafford, Eugene Cernan, and John Young. The first came as they sped back toward the Earth. Hey, I've got a message for you guys. Here it is. Congratulations to Snoopy for doing what I've been trying to do for a long time. Signed, Red Barrett. And the other came from the crewman of the astronaut's pickup ship, the USS Princeton, as the three pioneers were plucked from the waters of the Pacific. Painted on the bottom of that helicopter, a special warning sign. The eyes and a message, hi there, Charlie Brown. And that's the story. A story as new as tomorrow's headlines. The story of the trail which is being blazed to our mysterious satellite right at this moment. A story of hope, of endeavor, of frustrations, and most of all, of supreme courage. Only a few days from now, God willing, man will have set foot on the moon for the first time. An impossible achievement, but for those who blaze the exciting trail. And next week, I hope I'll be here to tell you about the preparations for this historic journey. Until then, this is Charles B. Ryan here at the New Mexico Center wishing you all good night. Recorded material in tonight's program was used by courtesy of the Voice of America. Got a man-sized thirst? A thirst for a beer that's strong, husky, and lusty to the last lively drop? Then go for the man's brand, now in new man-sized cans. Big new 16-ounce man-sized cans of Carling Black Label are available now in the Transvaal, Free State, and Northwestern Cape areas. Man, oh man, this is what real beer is all about. Go for the man's brand. Carling Black Label Beer in big new man-sized cans. Carling Black Label Beer. Carling invites you to listen again next week to another story in this dramatic series, The Challenge of Space. That's the show for this week, but don't forget there are thousands more like it at relicradio.com. Horror, strange tales, science fiction, crime, all available for free. If you'd like to donate to Relic Radio and help keep it all free, you can do that through the website as well. Visit donate.relicradio.com to find out more and to see the special downloadable sets that are available. My thanks to those who have donated, and thanks for listening today. Talk to you again next week.